1 Timothy uh, chapter 2 verses 1 to 7. So it's on page 1248 of the church Bibles. I urge then first of all that requests, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour who wants all men to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. Um, I'm reading the next reading, but it's a little bit tricky. It goes through a couple of different chapters in Hebrews, so what I might do is read each bit and stop and tell you where the next bit is. So they all do kind of follow one from each other. And the first one is, it adds listed up there, it's Hebrews 7, and it's verse 23. So the first bit is Hebrews seven twenty three to eight, chapter eight verse two. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. The point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. The next bit we're going to read is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 to 15. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. And the final little bit I'm reading is on the next page. It's on the same bit we're on now. And it's um, chapter 10, verses 10 to 18. 
And by God's will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ, once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for, for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, This is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Thanks, Bronwyn. Uh, do keep your Bibles open. We're going to be looking at a few of those passages from Hebrews and uh, 1 Timothy. Uh, and hopefully uh, you got an outline. I'm, I'm not sure if there were enough in the end, but uh, an outline came in uh, at the door, which is uh, where we're headed tonight. It's got the passages that we read. Uh, you might look, look at them later. Uh, or it's, and it's also got the uh, outline of where we're headed. So, yeah. Uh, now, is God angry or is God loving? Uh, it seems like uh, we can often hear two options, those kind of two options that he's either angry or he's loving. That's kind of how he's, out, how he's sometimes conceived. You know, maybe he's, he's angry and no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, we're never good enough for God. We're always falling short and we can't do anything about it. We're always trembling in the fear of judgment. And God, you know, he's, it's like he's always got a scowl on his face, kind of looking out there for how we can pick up. Thanks, Alistair. I, I, it's good to get those responses. Uh, on the, or on the other hand, maybe he's, you know, we see him as loving and loving only, you know, as anything's okay as long as you're true to yourself and it doesn't matter what you do you know, God's not going to judge you know he's he overlooks it all he's in the business of forgiving uh, and and so it's almost like God's like a, a a fairy godmother or a big you know heart-shaped tree in a paddock angry or loving one or the other it seems but we struggle to kind of hold them together as well like do they do they go together even uh, partly, I think, the way that this thought is out there, it's affected by our own patterns of thinking. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, when I was at school and you're there in the classroom and you hear the knock at the door and someone comes in and says, James Brooks, uh, you need to go and see the principal. Um, when that happened, fear was my first response. You know, what have I done? You know, some, what am I going to get busted for? Um, were you like that? Or maybe you're kind of on the other side of things where, where the same set of circumstances, knock comes in, uh, you know, you've got to go and see the principal's office and it's like, hey, cool, I wonder what award I'm going to get today. Or, or maybe even just, oh, that's, that's strange, but at least I get to get out of maths or English or whatever it was. And so when it comes to God, um, which is he? Is he kind of a loving, doting grandparent with stars in their eyes or a, a harsh and crusty principal who's a killjoy looking for blood? Well, I want to say this evening that those two 
ideas, those two views or extremes that I've expressed, actually, neither of them capture up how God expresses him, how the God of the Bible expresses himself uh, as, as he shows himself in Jesus. But there are aspects that, of those that do come together. You see, God is loving and he is angry, as we'll see, but they're closely connected together. You see, let me ask you two questions. Firstly, do you love your children, your family, your parents, your, your friends? Do you love them? Yes, I'm sure you do. Uh, but secondly, do you get angry with your children, with your parents, with your family, with your friends? Yeah. Does that mean that you don't love them? Well, no. Uh, sometimes, admittedly, our anger is about ourselves and it's, it kind of comes out of our own self-centeredness. But in our best moments, our anger often is actually coming out of our love for them. Isn't it? Why is God angry? Well, it's because He is loving. You see, anger is not the opposite of love. Sometimes we can kind of oppose those things, you know, loving, hating or loving and, and anger. But the opposite of love is actually apathy. It's just not caring. But God is angry because His love demands a world without evil. God is angry because His love demands a world without evil. He hates what is wrong. And that's right. Now you might be thinking, how does all of this fit with what we've been looking at, our series, ideas that change the world, the ideas of the Reformation, uh, faith alone, grace alone, Bible alone, Christ alone. How do these fit together? Well, as we'll see this evening, it's actually Christ, Jesus Christ and Christ alone, who is the answer that God's love brings He's the answer that God love, God's love brings to the problem that we face in our sin and that we face in God's anger, God's right anger. Jesus is the only answer, for it's in Him alone that God's love and God's anger at sin, His judgment, His justice, perfectly meet. Now, this week, as we do come to focus on that fourth catch cry, uh, Christ alone, uh, that we're saved on the basis of what Jesus has done alone, who He is and what He's done, it can still, I don't know about you, but you hear those phrases, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and, and, it, and it feels like they're all connected, or like, are they all saying the same thing, or which, which one do I kind of which preposition do I put before them? Is it that we're saved you know, by grace, uh, we're saved in Christ and, and through faith, or is it kind of, we're saved by faith and it's through Christ? And like, how do, how do they sort of fit together, orient themselves? It can be a bit confusing. And so, just to clear that up, hopefully, for you, God's grace kind of sets the context for the whole thing. It answers the question, why God would ever want to save those who rejected Him in the first place? Because of His undeserved 
favour towards him. That's his grace. God's grace sets up the context of why he would do this. Um, Christ, it's in Christ that God actually does the saving work. And we'll see what he does in a moment. But it's in Jesus that the kind of the business of God saving us really happens. And it's faith, through faith in Christ's work, in what he's done, in his dying for us and rising to new life. That Jesus' work doesn't just stay out there as something that happened in history 2,000 years ago. uh, Or something that you've heard about and, oh yeah, it's over there. But faith says... Faith sees what God has done in Jesus and says, yes, I want that. I want in. That's what faith says. And it applies it to us in that sense. Does that make sense? Grace kind of sets that context. Why would God do this? Christ In Christ is where God does the work and faith is taking that and saying, yes, I want in. It's Christ who actually does the work. And in fact, it's, it's faith that comes with open hands uh, and holds on to what Jesus has done. Now, there's more in each of those aspects, but that's how they fit together. Um, if you like, um, we are at the beach recently and uh, who likes going to the... Well, you don't have to put your hands up. I like going to the beach at summertime. It's, very, it's a pleasure of mine uh, and it's a pleasure seeing my kids start to enjoy the beach more as well. Um, but we're there and you've got the lifesavers uh, on, on the beach. Uh, so kind of their attitude of standing there, looking out, being ready to save people, that's kind of like God's grace in a sense. That's the, the air, the attitude. It's, it's, you know, those new jet skis with the sort of floaty thing on the back that you can hold on to. Anyone seen those before? No? It's, it's, you know, it's the upgraded version of the, you know, the rubber ducky with the 50 horsepower in the back is the jet ski with the... Uh, thing that you hold on to on the back so that you can get rescued of, you know, out of the big waves and stuff. Um, well, it's like Jesus is the one who's on the jet ski, powering the jet ski with his arm out, coming to rescue us. And it's faith. Faith isn't, isn't the kind of the good swimming uh, that gets you out of the rip or anything, but faith is, is putting your hand up and saying, I need rescue. Yes, rescue me. And it's Christ, so, it's Christ alone, though, that we're focusing on today. You see, God loves the world. He loves the people that he has made, but because, of, because we've turned away from him, our sin, uh, he is angry. It's because of his love that he is angry. Because, well, in fact, it wouldn't be right to just forget all that we've done. It wouldn't be right to say that it doesn't matter that we've turned away from the one who we ought to follow. We call that injustice and by and large we hate it, especially when it's us who are receiving it. No, true love, you see, doesn't just ignore anger at what is wrong because true love delights in the truth. But true love instead deals with the anger at what is wrong. And that's exactly what God has done in Christ, through who he is and what he's done. Let's have a look at those two uh, next points on the outline, who Jesus is and what he's done. Now, in Jesus, uh, just go a couple more slides for me, Tony. Yeah, great. Um, Now, in Jesus, we've got someone unique. 
when two parties are in a dispute, it's kind of a matter of, of, of conflict, you often need a mediator, don't you? Someone to stand in the middle uh, as, a, as that kind of go-between brings uh, those two parties together. Someone to help them come together and work things out. Uh, hopefully see them reconciled, go from being two at war to being, being one again. And there's, there's mediators for all kinds of different disputes with, I'm sure, different qualifications, mediators for legal disputes, mediators in, in family disputes and marriage disputes, mediators for all kinds of disputes. But who, honestly, who could possibly mediate between us and God? I mean, someone that we both mutually respect and have contact with, can have contact with. It's not going to just be any ordinary human being, is it? Well, we're sinful and God is angry at sinful human beings and so it can't just be one of us. That's the whole problem in the first place. But on the other side of things, it couldn't just be God himself because, well, then the mediator himself wouldn't be able to stand us. We wouldn't be able to come and approach the mediator, come and approach the one who's trying to bring us together. That doesn't work. Now, in this case, between God and mankind, humanity, there needed to be someone special, someone unique. Now, earlier, just before we came to look at... uh, just before I got up, we read a few passages from the letter of Hebrews. It's a great letter. There's a few passages on the outline uh, at the top there, which are great ones to read. In fact, we're going to read that um, first one from Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. So it's good for you guys to look it up. So do go to that page in your Bibles. If you've got one of the red church Bibles, I've got page 1254. But if you don't have a Bible in front of you, uh, I will have it on the screen as well. But I encourage you to have a look at it. Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 3. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Something special has happened. And God, in the past, spoke to his people through various prophets, people that were particularly chosen from among his people. But in the last days, God says, he's spoken through his son, his come and indeed shown himself to us through his son, Jesus. I said before we needed someone special. Well, in Jesus, we have just that special someone. Look there. Jesus is the son, the the heir of all things, we're told. that Everything belongs to him. The, The world was made through him. And he's, as it says, the radiance of God's glory, the, the, the brightness of the light, in a sense, the perfect visible expression of the invisible God. You want to see what God is like? Look at the sun. Look at Jesus. It sounds like someone who really could relate well to God on our behalf, couldn't he? 
But the question is, is he too high? Is he too distant from us to really connect with us, to be the right mediator, the go-between between us and God? Well, let's look at it again at that uh, verse that was read for us from 1 Timothy. If you just turn back about, I reckon, about 10 pages in your Bible, you'll probably, you might actually, not that many, six pages, you'll find 1 Timothy through 2 Timothy, to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Verse 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, between God and people, the man, Jesus Christ, man Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus is not just God, the radiance of God's glory. He's also human, truly God and truly human, the one mediator. He's God, yet not unapproachable. He's human, yet not flawed and sinful, deserving of judgment himself. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And so he is able to sympathize, empathize with our weakness. He knows what it's like to be human with all our temptations, because He was, because He is human, truly human, truly God. In fact, I don't know if you kind of think about this particularly uh, at Christmas, but this is why we celebrate Christmas. You see, we, you know, we talk about Jesus and His death on the cross as kind of being the central thing in Christianity, but we don't just celebrate Easter, kind of what He did on the cross, we, we celebrate the amazing God, the one whose hands flung stars into space, that God becoming uniquely and truly human. That's the best gift about Christmas. That God entering into a broken and fallen, His broken and fallen creation, laying aside his glory, humbling himself to be breastfed, to have his nappy changed, to learn how to talk. This God humbling himself, that in him, the Son, he might be the perfect mediator, the perfect go-between the one who could actually stand between us and God. That's why God sent His Son into the world as a man, in order to to reconcile this world that had rejected Him, a world that He loved yet was rightly angry with. In Jesus we have the perfect mediator, the perfect priest, if you will. That's kind of really what a priest is. Uh, We're talking about priests at youth group on Friday night and someone said he's he's the go-between. He's the one who who stands in between. In fact, that's why I don't call myself a priest in the church. I work here, I'm a, I'm a minister, but I don't call myself a priest. And in fact, when people say, oh, you're a priest then, well, I usually, if there's opportunity, I'll say why I don't think that I don't call myself a priest. Because I'm, in fact, not one. I don't stand between you and God. 
I don't, I don't mediate between you and God as if you need me. Because in fact, I need a mediator between me and God. I need Jesus just as much as you need Jesus. He is our priest, our high priest, the one who stands between us and God, not me. That we might, different people might encourage, in fact, we all encourage one another and point people to God, but it's Jesus who's that one who stands between. So coming back to where we're going, why is God angry? Well, it's because his love demands a world without evil. And in Jesus, the God-man, the perfect priest, perfect mediator, God prepares to deal with our sin, to bring us back together, reconcile us. He did it in who Jesus is. But also, secondly, in what he's done. For the next slide for me, thanks. Now, I don't know if you've ever been actually in one of those disputes, one of those conflict resolution things with a mediator. And, but I think, I gather that the mediators themselves don't actually bring that much to the table. Um, they don't contribute a whole lot. They don't have like a whole lot of things that they can say, well, you want this and you want this. And hey, look, I've got all this stuff. So here you go. And then you resolve. No, he doesn't do that. It's more about communication and bringing those two parties together, uh, helping them to reconcile. They're helping each party to see reason and to act reasonably, compromise. But the problem in this situation with us and God is that in our dispute, God is completely on the side of reason. He is completely justified in his anger at sin, anger at those who he made and who he rightfully rules who said, No thanks, I'll do it my way. God is completely justified in that. And in fact, the only acceptable price for us turning from our Creator, from the source of life, and all is that our lives are actually forfeit. How do you you mediate that? How do you reconcile between God and us when our lives are just simply forfeit? What could you give in exchange for our lives that would satisfy the one to whom they're rightfully owed? I suppose you could conceive of maybe another life kind of coming and, and, and being given for our life, a substitute, a swap. You know, I saw an ad the other day on TV for, it's probably a little bit old now, movie, but The Negotiator, Denzel Washington, and he comes in and he speaks to the terrorist or, and says... Let the, let the hostages go. Take me. And he stands in there and lets them, lets them go free. But, but who would do that with us and God? In fact, whose life is there who doesn't already owe it to God anyway? Well, because of who Jesus is, truly human, our representative, yet also Truly and fully God, he is both able and willing to give his life as a swap. Truly human in the place of humans. Truly God, sufficient for all of humanity. 
Let's look at a couple of those passages again. 1 Timothy, I've still got my Bible there, if you've got it there as well. 1 Timothy chapter 2, page 1244 in the Red Bibles. What does he say in verse 6? It says, This man, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, for all people. A ransom, a payment made, releasing us, freeing us from what held us captive, sin and death and judgment. Come back with me to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 7, it's, uh, what is it, about 10 pages over, towards the back of the Bible, Philemon, Hebrews, Hebrews 7, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, you see this context of priests and priests offering sacrifice, well what does Jesus offer, chapter 7, verse 27, where are we there, he doesn't offer sacrifices for himself, but the last sentence there, he sacrificed for the sins of the people once for all when he offered himself. He's a priest, he's the go-between, but what's he offering? Himself. Again, chapter 9, verse 13, over the page for me. Uh, down on the left. The, unlike the other Old Testament priests who sacrificed day after day the blood of bulls and goats that God had provided for an outward cleansing, Jesus as our high priest, our new high priest, offered what? Verse 14, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, Jesus offered his own blood in place of ours, and what does it do? Cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death. Cleanse us on the inside. This is the sacrifice that Jesus made. Chapter 10, verse 10. Have a look. It's, it's by God's will, by that will, by that plan. It's God's plan, God's will that we've been made holy, made clean, like a, like a sheet, a white sheet that is stained and bloody, yet has been made holy and is now pure and white, hanging on the line in the glorious sunshine. We've been made holy, sin removed, and it's by what? The sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. Who's making the sacrifice? Jesus. What's he sacrificing? Himself. Whose plan was it in the first place? It's God's plan, wasn't it? Jesus' plan with his Father. And it's Jesus alone who can do it. It's, it's truly amazing, isn't it? It's, it's jaw-dropping, this life-giving kindness, undeserved kindness from God in the man Jesus Christ. God who not only humbles himself to become human, but humbles himself to die. That, that one, that's a mediator that I want. Is that, is that a mediator that, that you want, that you have? Is it one that you've maybe thought about a little bit before, this, this Jesus guy, but never said yes to, never said, yes, I want in? Well, come, come talk to me. 
over supper. We'll talk about it. This is someone who is making his offer to you. The one and only mediator. As I said earlier, it seemed like we saw God as either loving or angry, but we've seen here that it's his anger that comes out of his love because his love demands a world without sin. It's his love that deals with that same anger. True love didn't ignore his anger at what was wrong, but it deals with it in Christ, through who he is and what he's done. But there's just a few conclusions I want to nail before we finish. There's five there, five dots, uh, and they're about two sentences each, two or three sentences each. So firstly, this is all pretty amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. And so let yourself continue to be amazed. Be amazed continually. Dwell on this, on how amazing it is that God became man and died. Fill your mind with it. Read about it. Think about it. Talk about it. Sing about it. Praise God about it. And do it with others. Two, Jesus is unique as the God-man. It's it's. We've seen it's him, who, who he is and what he's done. There's no one else that can do that. It needed to be him to properly deal with our sin. But that means that the way to God is exclusive. There is one way to God. We can't all just walk along any road that we feel like. All roads don't lead to Rome in this case. It's not different roads that are all spiralling around the same mountain or something. They're different roads. And there's one. Jesus. Three, if you call Jesus your Lord and your Saviour, then know that he's also your high priest, your go-between with God and the all-sufficient sacrifice for you as well. And so... If he is that, don't be fooled into thinking that you still need a priest to offer a sacrifice. Someone else to still stand in between you and God as if you're not good enough to approach him or, you know, is, is God going to, you know, strike me down or something? No, no. Jesus has made you acceptable to God because of his sacrifice. That white sheet on the line. Don't be fooled into thinking you need another priest. Fourthly, what God has done in Jesus is complete. We can't actually pay for it. We can't contribute. Our lives are forfeit. To say or think that we can contribute is because of the huge cost of what's involved is actually offensive to the giver. To think that what we can do can somehow make it not as costly for God. We need to accept what Jesus has done and trust him. Give thanks. And lastly, don't be confused by some of the language in the Bible about sacrifices that we seem to bring to God. There's uh, words about that, in particular uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. 
Uh, and even in uh, our uh, Lord's Supper service, we talk about offering our lives as a living sacrifice to God. This is not what you do to make yourself acceptable to God. The Apostle Paul there in Romans is using that language of sacrifice to show what it meant all along to live with God as your rightful boss. It's not part of us being saved, being made right with God, but it's something that comes later. It's something that's just part of living for God. All right, there was those five things. I'm going to finish and let's just want to pray.